The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Welcome to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCoon. I serve as pastor of Zion Church. We're a congregation of believers who trust in the simple message of God's sovereign grace, where families come together to worship God in spirit and in truth through the simplicity of preaching, praying, and singing. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. If you live in the Gordo area or if you are visiting in the area, please join us for worship. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and on the first and third Wednesday evenings at 630 p.m. In today's message, we conclude our look at the divine preservation of scriptures. I just want to say a couple of things before we bring this portion of our Kingdom of God series to a close. First of all, I want to reiterate what I've said many times throughout these messages, and that is that we don't have to go outside of the Bible in order to prove anything about the Bible. The Bible is its own best interpreter, and its reliability stands alone, apart from the historical record with no need of extra-biblical confirmation. However, it is refreshing, is it not, to look at the historical record and to realize that rather than contradicting the Word of God, it supports it. That's what we've been trying to do here for the last two or three sermons, is to look at the historical record and just see how clearly it supports the fact that God divinely preserved His Word in English through the King James translators of 1611. Secondly, I also just want to say that I hope you've been able to bear with us through all the names and dates and historical citations. I realize a lot of this can be very dry, more like a lecture, but I believe it's important for us as God's people to realize that we have a treasure in the King James Version, that we have a treasure in the Word of God that's been preserved in English and that we can have confidence that God's divinely inspired word was also divinely preserved. And so I think it's important that we've taken a look at this, and I appreciate your patience in bearing with me. Today we will conclude our look at the divine preservation of scriptures, and I'm confident you'll come to the same conclusion that I have, that the word of God that was divinely inspired has also been divinely preserved in English through the King James Version. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit.
right, let's look at the motives of modern translations, modern translators. Westcott and Hort, first of all. You remember what I told you in 1881? Remember, remember that, that Codex Sinaiticus, that Greek manuscript of the Bible that had been discarded for many years, was found in 1844 by a man named von Tischendorf. And in 1881, after having spent 30 years, Westcott and Hort produced a new Greek New Testament. Brooke Foss Westcott was born in 1825 in England. Fenton J.A. Hort was born in 1828 in Dublin, Ireland. Both served as professors at Cambridge. Both were ordained Anglican ministers. As we have already seen, when they started the project, they were anti-Textus Receptus, and they were against the manuscript that had been used by the King James translators. They didn't go into it neutral. They went into it with a bias against them. Now, let's look at their beliefs. First of all, you may recall that in the mid-1800s, a man named Charles Darwin came up with a book called The Descent of Man and a theory that we know today as the theory of evolution. It was like a bomb going off in the, in the educational institutions of the world. Darwinism today has dominated most of our higher uh, institutions of higher learning. In fact, it's dominating our high schools and our elementary schools. Hort, by his writings, clearly believed in this new theory of evolution. He wrote to a man named John Ellerton in 1860, the book which has most engaged me is Darwin. Whatever may be thought of it, it is a book that one is proud to be contemporary with. My feeling is strong that the theory, the theories in that book, the theory is unanswerable. If so, it opens up a new period. This man was a believer in what Darwin put out there. And he was right about this. He might have been a prophet, Brother Mackey, because it did open up a new period. What about Westcott? Well, Westcott did not believe in the literal interpretation of the creation account of Genesis. He wrote to the Archbishop of Canterbury on Old Testament criticism in 1890, and this is what he said, No one now, I suppose, holds that the first three chapters of Genesis, for example, give a literal history. I can never understand how anyone reading them with open eyes could think they did. So here we have Hort, who is a subscriber to the beliefs of Darwin on evolution, and you've got Westcott, who doesn't believe that the Genesis account of creation is literal. He believes it's somehow allegorical or symbolic. Also, if you continue studying their backgrounds, Westcott and Hort both believed in the worship of Mary. They believed in the, the Catholic notion that Mary should be prayed to and worshiped. They were friends, as I've said already, of Charles Darwin, of Sigmund Freud, and Carl Jung, all of whom were enemies of the cause of Christ. They produced the English Revised Version in England, which became the American Standard Version when released in the USA in 1901. And this text, that they, this Greek text that they came up with, that they used to translate the ERV and the, and the ASB, ASV in, in English, was this Greek text that they found and put together in secret for some 30 years. And this text is the same text that is the basis of all modern translations of the scripture, and including the New King James Version, which drew heavily from this same 
corrupt line. Now, the New King James Version better tracks the King James Version, but it doesn't use the same manuscripts. And the translators of that version were about equally divided on whether the Textus Receptus or the Alexandrian line was more accurate. So, let me, let me, let me go specifically now and talk about some modern translations. Now, let me just say this up front. I'm going to pick on the New International Version. I'm just going to go ahead and admit it up front, okay? If you use that version, I'm not picking on you, okay? But I do want to try to encourage you to review and to look at that and to listen to what I'm saying, and I think we'll see that there's some serious deficiencies with the NIV and other modern translations that ought to drive us back to the good old KJV. So let's, let's talk about the motives of some of these modern translations, just various versions here if we have time. I may not have time to get to all of them, but let's start out with the NIV. Now, first of all, there's this theory in modern translation called dynamic equivalence. Dynamic equivalence says that you don't have to translate from the Greek literally, word for word, it's thought for thought. So in other words, if you find a, a something in the old Greek that doesn't really make as much sense today as it did back then, you can change it to something that's more sensible in our English today. And that's the basic approach of all the modern translations to one degree or another. In other words, I'll give you an example. <laughs> J.B. Phillips uh, put out the New Testament in modern English. In Romans 16 and verse 16, we're told to greet one another with a holy kiss. That's literally from the Greek. In the New Testament in modern English, he says, give one another a hearty handshake all around. <laughs> now, look, the sentiment may be similar, but that's not the literal words. And God didn't say my thoughts are what's inspired. He said my words are inspired. So let's talk about the NIV. In 1976, a team of 15 scholars using this approach of dynamic equivalence, that is thought for thought versus word for word translations, uh, started working on the NIV. And here I want you to, I'm, I'm reading now from the preface of that Bible. This is the stated methodology from the preface. The first concern of the translators has continued to be the accuracy of the translation and its faithfulness to the intended meaning of the biblical writers. This has moved the translators to go beyond a formal word-for-word -word rendering of the original text. Because thought patterns and syntax differ from language to language, accurate communication of the meaning of biblical authors demands constant regard for varied contextual uses of words and idioms, that is, sayings, and for frequent, mod frequent modifications in sentence structures. Okay? And that stated in, in their very preface is we're not going to do a word-for-word -word translation. All right. Now, this one bothers me. Listen to this. Now, this is all the way back in, in the 1980s. Now, listen to this about gender. One of the shifts that creates particular challenges to writers and translators alike is the manner in which gender is presented. The original NIV, 1978, was published in a time when, quote, a man would naturally be understood in many contexts to be referring to a person, whether male or female. But most English speakers today tend to hear a distinctly male connotation with this word. In recognition of this change in English, this edition of the NIV, along with almost all other recent English translations, substitutes other expressions when the original text intends to refer generically to men and women alike. Thus, for instance, 
The NIV 1984 rendering of 1 Corinthians 8.3, but the man who loves God is known by God, becomes in this edition, but whoever loves God is known by God. The idea here being that, uh, that they have taken the literal word when it refers in gender to the male, and they've sometimes changed it to where it's just generic. Here's something else it says. A related shift in English creates a greater challenge for modern translations. The move away from using the third-person masculine singular pronouns, he, him, is, to refer to men and women equally. This use, usage does persist at a low level in some forms of English, and this revision therefore occasionally uses these pronouns in a generic sense. But the tendency recognized in day-to-day -day usage and confirmed by extensive research is away from the generic use of he, him, and his. In other words, when the translators thought that it would be better to do so, they took he, him, or his out and put whatever they thought would be better. That concerns me. In 1984, when this, when this version was put out, we weren't, we weren't concerned too much about gender, were we? We weren't thinking too much about gender. We weren't thinking about a man and a man being able to marry or a woman and a woman being able to marry. We weren't thinking about gender fluidity, but what I see in this is the seeds of that coming in even into our scriptural approach, even leading us up to today. All right, there's some problems with this idea of dynamic equivalence, this thought for thought versus word for word rendering. Turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 1. You say, well, what does it really matter, preacher, if, if they put them, you know, they, they get it... They get it in some more modern language, and, and it's, it, it gets the point across. Well, the problem is God said it the way he wanted to say it, and he said it for a reason. He said it for a reason. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, Peter says this, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know that as he continues speaking here, he's going to get down to verse 18 where he talks about how we're redeemed, not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but he's going to talk about the precious blood of Christ. That King James rendering of gird up the loins of your mind has been changed in the NIV to this statement, prepare your minds for action. And most modern versions do that, by the way. Uh, in the 2011 revision of the NIV, they changed it to with minds that are alert. Remember the KJV, gird up the loins of your mind. The new modern translations, prepare your minds for action. Now, that gets across similar thoughts. It does. I, I, I'll grant you that. It's, that's what he means by gird up your loins, the loins of your mind. And, 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 and at first you may say, well, that's kind of clumsy way of saying it in modern English. But, but let me just say this to you. It wasn't normal in Greek either. That wasn't a normal Greek saying back then. What it is, though, is that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, deliberately used this to refer the readers back to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11, where in the Passover that is being given, he, he, uh, they're told there that thus shall you eat it with the loins girded and your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you see, the point is, is that this would, have, this would have been one of the most familiar passages of the Old Testament to a Jew like Peter. 
It would have been one of the most familiar passages in the Old Testament for all those Jews, the strangers scattered abroad that he's writing to, those Jews that he's writing to, to remind them every Passover they read that. Every Passover they were reminded that they had to gird up their loins and they had to put their shoes, they had to eat it with their loins girded, their shoes on their feet. And you know what Peter's doing? Peter is making a specific connection here with the sacrifice of Christ and the Passover that the Jews would have been familiar with. And the readers of the NIV and most other modern versions will miss that completely. Miss that completely. This equivalent expression is not equivalent. God inspired him to do this for a reason. There's some other passages. I just want to mention them briefly because our time is getting short here. Mark chapter 16 and verses 9 through 20 are not considered reliable by the modern translations. In fact, every modern translation, I believe, the ones I've seen, including the New King James Version, have a footnote there that say verses 9 through 20 are not found in the original manuscripts. What what do verses 9 through 20 say? Well, let's let's just look right briefly at verse 8. Notice how Mark Chapter 16 will end if we leave out verses 9 through 20. First of all, it begins with Mary Magdalene and the other ladies going to the tomb of Jesus and finding the stone rolled away and seeing a young man uh, saying, Be not affrighted. Jesus was, you know, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. In verse 8, they went out quickly, fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Boy, that's a downer, isn't it? If that's how Mark ends, that's, that's kind of gets you a little bit down and out, doesn't it? They, it leaves there with these women not saying anything to anybody and afraid. But verses 9 through 20 take us on into the resurrected Jesus and his ministry and the fact that he appeared to others. He appeared to, it, 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 verses, verse 12 uh, confirms Luke in the road to Emmaus encounter there and others' uh, encounters that occurred. And finally in verse 15 he said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And he goes on to talk about the signs that will follow them. Verse 20 says, they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. But the modern translations either leave it out completely or add a footnote that say you really can't rely upon this. Same thing with the New King James Version. As I said earlier, its ostensible purpose And I quote, in harmony with the purpose of the King James scholars, the translators and editors of the present work have not pursued a goal of innovation. They have perceived the Holy Bible, the New King James Version, as a continuation of the labors of earlier translators, thus unlocking for today's readers the spiritual treasures found especially in the authorized version of the scriptures. That's that's a good purpose, but the problem is this. Later on, you'll find that they don't use the Textus Receptus as authoritative, but they add to it. It says, for the New King James Version, the text used was the 1967-77 Stuttgart edition of the Biblia Hebraica. I hadn't gone into that much, but that's a new version of the Old Testament. Away from that old Masoretic text that everybody agreed was, was, um, was the best text. And ultimately, it's, they used the Septuagint, 
version of the Old Testament and the Latin Vulgate as guides as well. My point is this. They say they are true to it, but in reality, there's problems with it. So, our time is about gone, and this is really what I wanted to get to this whole message this morning. I want us to go and look at some verses. We did that last time a little bit, but I want us to look at a few verses this morning. From And I'm going to pick, as I told you, I'm going to pick on the NIV. It's just the easiest <laughs> to pick on. And I want us to see some differences that are very important differences between the NIV and the modern versions and the King James Version. First of all, there are 16 verses completely left out of the NIV. I mentioned that last Sunday night, and I won't go back over it, except I've already talked to you about Mark 16 and verses 9 through 20. Well, also, uh, John chapter 7 and verses, verse 53 through chapter 8 and verse 11, that's the story of the woman caught in adultery. That's the story where he ends up saying, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Those are not considered reliable by the NIV. There are several that are left out, and most, most glaring omission to me is 1 John 5, 7, which talks about the, 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 the Father and the Word and the Holy Ghost being one in heaven. It's the foundation for our, our belief of the Trinity. It's the most clear statement of the Trinity. But then there are many verses that are changed. In this version, the word hell is taken completely out of the Old Testament. It's taken out of the New Testament nine times. And in all the modern versions, the use of heaven, hell, and the word blood are vastly reduced. I want to take you to one. Essentially, all of these versions, in some way or another, take verses and change them to diminish the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me over to Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, this is a very familiar story. This is the story of the uh, fiery furnace where uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. And you know that when they got in there, they weren't burned. And the king stood up and was astonished. And, and this is what he said he saw in verse 25. This is our King James Bible. In verse 25 of chapter 3 of Daniel, he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, this is the NIV rendering of that verse. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Where's the Lord Jesus Christ? I submit to you, he's in the fire. Not a son of the gods, but the son of God. You don't have to turn there, but if you look over in Luke, the second chapter, verses 33 and 43, both refer to Joseph and Mary. In verses 33 and 43 in the King James Bible, they're called Joseph and his mother. Joseph and his mother, speaking of Jesus. And that's changed to the child's father and mother, in one verse, and his parents in the other. Notice what subtly is happening here. The divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ is being diminished. All right, what about John 3.16? That's, that's a very familiar uh, passage to, those, to everyone, not just primitive Baptists. Everybody knows that one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the NIV, it's, read, it's rendered this way. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's a big difference between your one and only Son and your only begotten Son. And by the way, I hope that they're wrong in the NIV because I hope I'm a son of God. We're talked about being, we're told in other places, we're the sons of God. There more, there's more than one and only Son of God. There's many sons of God, but there's only one begotten Son of God, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only begotten Son of God, you see. Again, it's important that His divinity be emphasized. Let's, let's go down, just for lack of time, to, uh, to, verse, to cha Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, should be also a very familiar passage to us. We go there quite a bit. Those of us that believe in the sovereign grace and the finished work of God, on, of Jesus Christ on the cross, it's a very important passage. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the rendering in the NIV. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What happened to by himself? <laughs> what happened to the fact that it says when he had by himself purged our sins? No, here we only have, well, he provided purification. Sounds like he made it available, but he didn't make it certain, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I want you to look one more place. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to this. As primitive Baptists, we believe that the new birth is a necessary prerequisite to anybody understanding or believing the gospel because the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, right? If we're dead in sins, we're dead to the gospel. But when you're born again, then you can hear the gospel because that's a spiritual thing, you see. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, in our KJV, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. In other words, that is a present condition that we are in. Them that perish is a present condition, but especially them which are saved. We are presently saved. And to those who are saved, it is the power of God. To those who have been born again and are presently in the condition of having been saved, it is the power of God. Listen to the NIV. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I got a question for you. Are we being born again or have we been born again? Are we being saved or have we been saved? Are we saved when we hear the gospel and it is the power of God? All right. I want to take you to, to a few other translations. And I want to read, read just a little bit here. I'll try to wrap this up quickly there's some very precious scriptures in Romans 8 chapter I think we all know where I'm headed with this in Romans 8 chapter the 28th verse is just the tip of the iceberg it's really just the beginning we know that all things work together for good to them that love God 
to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be made the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, whom he called, them he also justified, whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, I'm going to get off the NIV now, and I'm going to move on to some other modern translations. There's one out there called The Voice. You know how this reads in The Voice? Romans 8, 28 through 30, we are confident that God is able to orchestrate everything to work towards something good and beautiful when we love him and accept his invitation to live according to his plan. From the distant past, his eternal love reached into the future. You see, he knew those who would be his one day, and he chose them beforehand to be conformed to the image of his son so that Jesus would be the firstborn of a new family. Uh, new family of believers, all brothers and sisters. As for those he chose beforehand, he called them to a different destiny so that they would experience what it means to be made right with God and share his glory. I don't even recognize that. I don't, what doctrine do we get out of that? What teaching do we get out of that that we can rely on? What about the message? <laughs> I don't know if I even call that a translation. I don't believe it is. The message it's more like a magazine, but this is what it says here. And he, he actually backs up, and I'm, I'm going to go back to verse 26 and see if you recognize this. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right along us, side of helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. He knows our pregnant condition. He keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure. Here's verse 28, I think. <laughs> That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God has worked into something good. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. I don't really know where this is coming from. I'll just be honest with you. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling his people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. I'm not making fun of this. I'm pointing this out to you because you need to be aware of it. Amen. In the Garden of Eden, the devil said, Yea, hath God said. That's how he approached the temptation of Eve. Beloved, we need to know what God said. And I hope that we can see from this series of messages, this good old King James Bible, I believe it is the very word of God in English. Thank you for joining us today on the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. I hope the message has been uplifting and beneficial to you and that the Lord will continue to bless you to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. Join us again tomorrow for another message of God's sovereign grace. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com that's Z-I-O-N-P-B-C-1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismacool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer.
We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.